Welcome to Committing Faith in Public. This is the podcast for people who want to be inspired by individuals and communities of faith doing good work in public. Our guests tell stories of their work of weaving a more just, kind, and diversity-inclusive society. Our starting place for stories is Oklahoma because that is where we live and because many people, both in Oklahoma and beyond, are surprised when they learn that interreligious friendly, pro-democracy, diversity welcoming, public good oriented religion even exists in Oklahoma. So through this podcast, we're spreading good news and encouraging you in your faith and public life work. I'm Gary Peluso Verden, President Emeritus at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and working on the Religion and Public Life Initiative for the seminary. Well, I've got a treat today. I'm not at seminary, and I'm not somewhere else on the road. I'm in someone else's studio. I'm here with Jesse Ulrich. Jesse and I met, I think, through some work we did with Tulsa, uh, with um, Oklahoma uh, Center for Community and Justice, That's correct. Uh, working around Trialog when you were working at the Jewish Federation. Uh, and when I saw that uh, Jesse had left the Jewish Federation and was now doing uh, something interesting in podcasting, I said, well, uh, let's get him on. So, Jesse, thanks for taking some time today. Thank you. I'm very excited. So, uh, you're from Tulsa? Yes, but you also spent some time outside of Tulsa. Yes, I spent 12 years in Boston, uh, and I moved there in t- 2005 to get my master's degree at Brandeis University. Mm-hmm. My master's was in Near Eastern Judaic Studies, which is a very, they have a very large program there. And so Near Eastern Judaic Studies could mean anything from, I had friends who were learning lots of dead languages, like what mm-hmm. the, what, you know, uh, Acadian. Acadian, yes. Right. I have a friend who knows Acadian. It's, you know, it's weird. Dead languages only have, they, they have a, a finite amount of words and you just learn all the words. I'm like, right. that sounds, that sounds nice. And, <laughs> but I, I wanted to focus on sort of 20th century American Jewish history because that's what interested me. Being raised by two New York Jews in Broken Arrow, I wanted to know sort of the history of Jews in this country and how, how my parents ended up here, how, a friend of mine who I was the only Jew he knew why, why he found Seinfeld funny. Cause like I knew, I knew why I found it funny. I could not understand why someone <laughs> right. who didn't have right. okay. that okay. cultural history, like why are they laughing at that joke? Right. Cause like I get it. I, I know where that joke comes from. I'm like, are they laughing with them? Are they laughing at them? I was just very, I was very interested in sort of the Jewish cultural experience and how parts of a Jewish thing became an American thing. Okay, well, let's then back up a little right. bit because I, I, I saw in an a older article about when, when you first moved back here that uh, you went to Burroughs Elementary. Yes. Um, and you were one of two white kids in the school. It was, uh, there were three white kids in the school. It was two twins and me, and we were both in like an intermediate first grade class. And our teacher, our teacher was also white, but that was it. And weirdly enough, I won some like Martin Luther King like essay contest, and I was like, even at the time, I'm like, this doesn't, this feels weird. This feels weird, right? Yes. But that was, um, it was one of those experiences where you don't realize it until much later that it just sort of automatically gave me more sort of empathy and understanding into people whose lives were different from mine. Because all of my friends that year were not from a suburb or were not necessarily all middle class. They had different, 
They had different backgrounds than me. They had different experiences than me. And the fact that my dad taught at the Metro campus of TCC also meant I, I got to experience things and learn about things that my, necessarily my friends didn't necessarily learn about. Like I learned mm-hmm. about the race massacre long before it showed up in my college history class. Cause wow. we certainly didn't, didn't learn about it in elementary or middle school or high school. My dad learned about it from other professors there. Mm. And so that, you know, that those two experiences and also being Jewish and broken arrow of which there were at the time, I was the only Jew in any school I went to until the 11th grade. And then there were two of us in a school of 2000 kids. So I either had to pretend I wasn't so I could blend in or be the Jewish representative. And of course I went with the second option because I like attention and anything to be different and special. I was like, yes, I'm on board. So you had the dual experience of being a racial ethnic minority uh, and also then a religious minority. Yes. And how would you say that th- that those formational experiences affected you? You know, as as I've gotten older, and you know, we the the world has become the world it is, and I've been working in this the world of reconciliation and equality and sort of um, interfaith work. I'm able to take a step into people's experiences who are not my own because I I have a vague sense of the otherness they're probably feeling. Mm-hmm. I'll never know exactly mm-hmm. how they're feeling, mm-hmm. but I will know in some small part. You'll know analogously. Yes. yes, yes. Like, for example, this time of year, right? Right. As a Jewish person, you feel very other. There's just Christmas stuff everywhere. And the fact that I was always asked, like, why don't you celebrate Christmas? And I'm like, I, I shouldn't have to be the one to explain that to you. Like, it should be clear. Like, the the idea of what the Christians I was running into were learning at church about Jews, if they were learning about Jews at all, was very small. And, you know, over time, the, the, you know, when the, like, the Black Lives Matter movement started, there was a lot of conversation about how the leaders in that movement were tired of having to teach white people right. how to be allies. They're like, listen, we're tired of you coming to us. I mean, like, how, how can I help? What am I doing wrong? I totally got that because people would come to me with their questions about Judaism and whatnot. I'm not a rabbi. I've never been a rabbi. I could, I could, do, I could answer the best I could, but I, it's exhausting and very stressful to be the representative for one part of your personality mm-hmm. or of your identity, I should say. Right, as well as Judaism as plural. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, having to answer for... Like why Orthodox Jewish women wear wigs? I was like, like I can explain to you why. I don't believe that, but I sure I will tell you. Like, but like I'm not going to defend it. Like as a Christian, uh, and you know, why do Catholics do such and such? Why do Pentecostals do such and such? And I can do the same, which is yeah. Well, I can tell you what I know about that, but it's I don't know that from a firsthand experiences. And you know that led to very interesting experiences where, like, in the sixth grade. There was a, a guy I knew who we're now we're now friendly, but he was you know, in the sort of evangelical non-denominational movement, and he just sort of went around sort of telling certain people that they were going to go to hell, right? And I understood why he told me that, but then he was telling some he was condemning some other people I knew to hell, and I was like, wait, why is he condemning you to hell? And it goes, one was a Lutheran, one was a Catholic, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't understand this. Like, what are you guys arguing about? And like that, that led to sort of my fascination with like world religions. Cause it's, I'm always like, why are you guys fighting? Like, mm-hmm. you know, internal religious fights fascinate me. Like, this is what we're going to branch off and make a whole new, you know, uh, rules of faith about. Cause we're, we're mad over 
whether something actually turns into wine or doesn't, or um, what acts you have to do to get into heaven, or if it's acts at all and not just faith, right? So it's, you know, I can I can both be in and out of the majority group and in and out of, of a minority group. And so that, that gives me a very interesting lens by which mm-hmm. to talk to people about mm-hmm. certain things. Well, certainly fratricide is the oldest form of murder, yeah. according to scripture. That's right. <laughs> At least in biblical terms. So in Boston, were you part of a larger Jewish community than in Boston? Oh, yes. Uh, Boston has about 280,000 Jews, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was a very unique experience. One, going to Brandeis, which is a quasi-Jewish university. When I actually looked up the demographics, I was surprised because it was about 60-40 Jewish. And I thought it was going to be like 80-20, maybe 90-10. Mm-hmm. But just seeing Jews everywhere, I I finally sort of understood what my parents' childhood must have been like. Mm. In the area where we lived most of the time we were there, there were, on Saturday morning, if I like went down to the CVS or the Whole Foods, I would see Orthodox Jews walking to and from services. And I'm just like, there were just Jews everywhere. And it was... It's obviously a different experience, but also I and I talked to people and worked with people who grew up there, and what I realized was it was sort of less special for them to be Jewish hmm. there, and it was hard for me to sort of engage with that. Like I liked having all the resources of having a much larger community, but I missed the specialness of it because you could you could live in a Jewish bubble there and be able to go to a Jewish deli and walk to your synagogue or temple and just do Jewish things all the time. Mm-hmm. And here you kind of had to, you had to want it. Mm. And part of me kind of missed that, mm-hmm. weirdly enough. Mm. And in addition to your studies, did you do some work out there also? I did. I graduated from Brandeis in 2007. I, I should go back a little bit. I originally wanted to go get a PhD, be a college professor, as all nerdy academics want. You know, I was raised by, you know, I was raised by an English teacher. I thought teaching, I enjoy teaching. I was like, this is the path I'm going to go. And I just sort of looked at the the outlook of the academic world as far as teaching jobs go. And I was like, oh, mm. if I spend five to seven years working on this thing that mm-hmm. I'm probably not even going to care about by the end, and then there's going to be no jobs for me, I was like, maybe maybe I'll stop. Mm-hmm. Like every PhD candidate I met was just sad and you know sort of beaten down by it. I was like, mm-hmm. maybe I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. And so I just sort of went into the sort of Jewish nonprofit world up there. So I worked for a synagogue first and then a um a much larger Jewish nonprofit and then was laid off from that Jewish nonprofit in September of 2008. Uh, and so later that month I was at the gym watching our economy crash and I was like, well this isn't good. <laughs> and then I sort of threw together a couple of years of being a Boston Public School substitute teacher, which was mm. another experience that gave me insight into other people's lives. Mm. And then worked for a Jewish arts and culture organization, a small Jewish rabbinical school. And then finally, the one of the best jobs I'm, I'm probably ever going to have in my life, which was working for uh, JewishBoston.com, which was a program of the Federation up there as a centralized point for all of the Jewish organizations in town to post their events and blogs and interesting things like that. Because the community was so big, people were like, I, I don't want to receive 100 emails a mm-hmm. day, mm-hmm. so why, why can't we make one single place where everyone can go? Mm-hmm. And so it was like a startup within a much bigger organization, and it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So it was a communications hub for yes. those 280,000 yeah. yeah. Jews in the Boston area. Yes, and the Jewish community up there every 10 years does a sort of survey of the community to find out where the Jews are living, what problems are happening, and gaps that the Federation could help fill. And that's why 
the Boston Jewish community is incredibly welcoming of like interfaith couples hmm. because in the 95 survey they did, they're like, Oh, we're losing all these couples. Like, why are we losing all these? Why are we losing all these Jews? And they found out they didn't feel welcome uh, bringing their like non-Jewish spouses to things. And so over, over a decade, so much energy and time was put into being welcoming to these people. It's not complicated, but you had to just remind everyone all the time, like be welcoming, think about, what you're saying and how that might sound to someone who is there with their Jewish spouse, but is not Jewish. And it was really incredible. And I, I, I do miss that. And, but that the Jewish came out of one of those surveys. Mm-hmm. And that's something I, that's not necessarily done in every big Jewish community in the United States. They don't necessarily want to look internally that much, mm-hmm. but that was a very smart thing. And Boston is a, definitely a leader in, in sort of that kind of work. Because I've also heard the uh, that uh, um, assimilation is one of the biggest issues talked about uh, within, especially Reform Judaism, because the surveys said that if a um, if a Jew married outside of Judaism, that very often they left their faith behind in the marriage. Well, in, there was a lot of research being done at Brandeis about that, and what's funny is I was always an outlier in that. My wife, who is not Jewish. Um, I was literally getting, as my friends like to say, I got a master's degree in Jew. Uh, I've mostly worked for Jewish nonprofits. I'm I'm an outlier. Usually, if a male marries a female and the male is Jewish, mm-hmm. and they usually sort of, that that couple just sort of disappears. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's there's gender issues involved and other things, but a lot of that has to do with just convenience and tone, like the. The person marrying the non-Jewish spouse was the one who was blamed for leaving the faith, but it's not like up until recently any of the branches of Judaism were that welcoming to that. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's funny that throughout Jewish history we've been oppressed and regulated to certain parts of town mm-hmm. and forced to mm-hmm. only marry other Jews, mm-hmm. and then we come to America and we have this freedom. And what's the what's the first thing we do? We worry about what's going to happen to the future of Judaism, not thinking about what could this new Judaism look like. What could this new, more open, inclusive Judaism look like? It's like, no, we have to we have to stay the way we were. I've always been like, why? Like, first of all, like genetically, Jews need some new DNA up in there. Mm-hmm. We've got their their brain diseases only I can get apparently. Like that's not good. But also, you know, Judaism changes depending on where it is, mm-hmm. and American Judaism has the ability to become something I would say amazing if it was willing to risk the idea of letting more people in, like less, less defining it as, you know, it's a constant battle of, are we a people? Are we a religion? Are we right, both? Right. From the religion side, Judaism has never been big on like wanting people to convert, right? Converting to Judaism is not easy, mm-hmm. but it's, it's always been a possibility. So why, why not just let someone who married a non-Jew continue to do Jewish things? When was it you came back to Tulsa? Came back in August of 2017. And did the job bring you here? No, um, I we decided to move back, sort of honestly, post two thousand sixteen election. Uh, finally, that and both of our parents getting a little bit older and needing our help. Mm-hmm. Also, our our friends and family were all still here. Okay, and I was getting a little bored's not the right word, but I had realized I'd spent like a decade giving all this energy to the Boston Jewish community, and that community, while great, didn't need me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, where could I be of better use? Mm-hmm. And so moving back to Tulsa seemed good from that respect. And also, post the election of 2016, 
I realized that the one, one of the skills I had growing up here, the Jewish person was, I was able to talk to anyone sort of about anything. Mm -hmm. And that was a skill that liberals on the East coast do not have. Like they could not comprehend why someone would vote for president Trump. Like they were just, they were, they were numb and like mind blank. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I get it. I'm upset about it, but I get it. And that skill would be better used here than it would be up there. Mm. Interesting. But yeah, so I moved back without a job. Um, Actually, we literally had to drive for 24 straight hours so I could get to a job interview at the Bank of Oklahoma, which hired me. And I had that job for four days because on day one of that job is when Drew Diamond called me about Uh the job at the Jewish Ferry Uh at Tulsa. So I then had to leave Bank of Oklahoma after four days, which was awkward for everyone involved. I'm sure. (laughs) I'm sure. But it sounded like, I mean, based on what you did your work in at Brandeis, um, and your interests uh, that working at the Jewish Federation was a was a pretty good fit. It, w- it was a really great fit, and also gave me the opportunity to meet and sort of network with all the interesting people in town. I would not have met had I stayed in that Bank of Oklahoma job. And it also, I've always been someone who, as a Jewish historian, has always tried to focus people on the fact that, for example, the Holocaust is not the only thing that's ever happened to Jews, mm-hmm. and maybe we should focus less. We should definitely we should talk about it. It's important. But let's not make it the focal point of every interaction we have with people. And yet I become a Holocaust educator when I moved back here. But there was no there is no better time to be talking about Nazis and the rise of fascism than right now. Mm-hmm. And every tour that I gave or every tour that I oversaw or any public speech I gave, I was always like, let us not ignore the signs we are seeing right now. Right. All the things happening at the border, I was pointing to that over and over and over again, which sometimes got blowback. I got blowback sure. and pushback on that because they're like, there's this weird sense that we Jews feel we almost sort of own terrible things that, ha- that have happened to us and that those things cannot be analogous to other things. And mm-hmm. I, I disagree with that sort of fundamentally. Mm-hmm. But, but it was a great opportunity. And I'm, you know, I mean, I, I'm happy to not have to talk about the Holocaust on a daily basis, but it was a very rewarding opportunity. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it really uh, connected you a lot of places around yeah. town. So besides Holocaust education, there was also something you did in terms of community outreach? Yes. Yeah, so the, the, and the part we met uh, in the community engagement role of the job was the what, what I've always loved about the Jewish community here is that it has always been, while itself has been pretty stable and comfortable as a minority here, we very early on was like, we need to be involved with other religious and ethnic minorities and sort of help each other out. Mm-hmm. Because again, if, if they're going for one group, they could be going for us next. And, you know, that sort of work led us, you know, led me to being on the trilogue committee and working on the, on the, both the symposium and curriculum committee for the John Hope Franklin center, mm-hmm. which allowed me to do a lot of research on the Tulsa race massacre, which has been honestly like, almost as depressing as some of the Holocaust research I've done mm-hmm. because it's here, mm-hmm. right? There's always, you can always separate your, yourself from something that happened in another continent, mm-hmm. but something that, that happened here where I can drive down Peoria street and now have part of the commission report in my head, mm-hmm. like changes the way I look at the entire town. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there was, you know, whether it was, Im, you know, immigration issues, whether it was um, religious issues, whether it was like, uh, for example, a public school doing sort of Christmas things during school, right? And mm-hmm. parents of Jewish kids being upset about that. It allowed it sort of allowed me to f- to touch and interact with sort of all the other minority groups in town. 
or or even majority groups who were wanting to be more inclusive and you know outreachy, which is not really a word, but mm-hmm. go with it. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you then uh, did you take something of a leap of faith to um, uh, depart from there and to get into the podcast work that you're doing now? Well, I've always been a fan of stories. Ah. And the thing I, I've learned in my 15-ish years of working for nonprofits is that I've never met a group of people more dedicated to helping the world and so bad at telling their own stories, <laughs> at telling people why they are doing something. Mm-hmm. And it's not like I have a degree in marketing, but like I sort of accidentally fell into it in, at Jewish Boston because, again, while we were there, they were going to re- re- they were redoing the entire website, which led to conversations with, depending on how you count, there are 300 to 600 Jewish organizations in the greater Boston area. And I met with a good 50 of them. And every conversation about what they want out of Jewish Boston led into a larger conversation about, well, am I doing Facebook right? Am I doing emails right? Am I doing Twitter right? And from that experience, what I learned was, especially when it comes to social justice-oriented nonprofits, the people who work for those nonprofits are very good at that thing they're working on. They aren't necessarily good at explaining that simply to other people. So I took, you know, as when the Federation job that I had actually became four people's jobs, and it seemed like a good time to leave it at that, I was like, well, what what skills do I have, right? Because what, what I don't want to do is go tell a part of town or a group of people what they should be doing. That's not the way to be a good ally. The way to be a good, good ally is to use tools you you already have and skills you already have to help them in a way that either they can't or they haven't thought about yet. And as sort of a podcast hobbyist for the past decade, I was like, well, what can I do? I can help them tell stories. And so as part of a Thrive Tulsa, which is a program of Leadership Tulsa, I sort of launched Podcast for Good, which is a... Mm-hmm podcast consulting business for nonprofits where mm-hmm. if, if a nonprofit, for example, like uh, James Inc., which helps um, expecting and parenting, you know, adolescent mothers sort of stay in school and go to college and take care of their baby. They have amazing stories, amazing success stories, right? I didn't even know that organization existed until, I, and, until we did a teen yeah. pregnancy day as part yeah. of Thrive Tulsa. And so now I'm, I'm helping them do a podcast mm. and, I'm I'm an optimistic person by nature. I believe that people want to help and podcasts are a very personal way of telling stories about what a nonprofit does, how people can help and what success looks like. Mm-hmm. So, that that's what I'm trying to do now. Mm-hmm. So, besides helping people tell their stories and maybe offering some technical uh support and and kind of make sure they're everybody's checking all the boxes when it comes to uh, ways you could promote. Are there some other things that your, that, that your business does? Yes. Well, these nonprofits out, for example, they are, they are welcome to use my studio that we are sitting in with the expensive equipment I've bought on a zero interest credit card. And cause it's podcasting is one of those things that it's easy. It's easy to do, but it's hard to do well. Sure. And doing a well requires learning interviewing skills. It requires a, an ability to understand how audio editing works. It requires some technical knowledge about RSS feeds and how the different mm-hmm. podcasting online warehouses work. 
And then it requires a little marketing because just like everything else, you have to figure out how do you get people to listen to your podcast. Mm-hmm. One of the ways you do that is by going on other people's podcasts. So mm-hmm. this is this is helpful for both of us. But, you know, equipment like this is not, again, like you can buy, you know, doing a doing a podcast by yourself is easy. You get a USB microphone, you plug in your computer, you hit record. As soon as you add a, a second person into that, it becomes a lot more complicated. And so I'm able to show people how that works. They're able to use my equipment if they want or if they want to buy their own and start doing it that way. That's fine, too. And really, a lot of times it's in the editing phase where I come in because mm-hmm. editing is not something I thought I would enjoy, but I mm-hmm. enjoy it immensely. Hmm. It's I want everyone to sound their best and I want to you know, you, you listen to podcasts from like Slate or the New York Times or whatever, and you don't realize how much work has gone into that mm-hmm. until uh, every once in a while, for example, Slate did because their, their listeners were asked what it is they want, and the listeners wanted to hear to an unedited version of an episode. And I listened to that, and I realized they um and yeah and cough and pop as much as everybody else, right? But that's what editors do. They make you sound like you want to sound in your head. That's what I want to do for sort of the nonprofits here in town and the for-profit and governmental workers who are trying to make Tulsa more resilient. In a lot of the work you've done in your adult life, it's been in some way explicitly connected to your faith, uh, to your faith, uh, faith slash ethnicity, depending on, uh, right. And that's a, that's a, a um, that topic of is Judaism a faith, is Judaism an ethnicity, it's getting more attention recently again. How about the podcast for good? Is this also an expression or connection somehow to your faith? Judaism is a religion of stories and especially what we'd consider to be modern Judaism, whether it's Orthodox conservative or reform or reconstructionist or secular humanist. It's a religion of rabbinic stories. The Talmud, the thousand years of rabbis looking at the five books of Moses and being like, okay, this story says this, but what it actually means is this and this and trying to sort of moderate with the times, which I always appreciated. Mm -hmm. It's a religion of stories, right? All all of our holidays are a story about a struggle Judaism went through or a pivotal time in our history. I have no doubt that that history of one of history, right? Of an appreciation of history and, immense stories probably influenced my desire to want to help other people tell stories. Mm-hmm. There's, especially in Reform Judaism and Conservative Judaism here in Tulsa, the idea of, you know, tikkun olam, of to, to mm-hmm. fix the world, is an incredibly, almost some might say, the most important component of modern Judaism, because whether you believe God exists or not, whether you believe uh, that there is some sort of afterlife or not, Jews are instructed to leave the world better than, than it was given to us. Mm-hmm. And I've always stuck to that because that that's real. Like we live in this world. Mm-hmm. We should we should take care of it. Mm-hmm. And from from Tikkun Olam and from the sort of history of great stories, sort of comes the idea of helping people tell their stories via a medium that is incredibly personal. Podcasts are in your ears. At least the way I listen to them, it, it, it's in our ears, not coming out of a speaker somewhere. But it's a very personal, intense experience, and. If you do it right, you've made an advocate for life if you tell your story right. So I have no doubt my the, the Judaism I was raised in has influenced me wanting to be both a professional podcaster and like sort of podcast consultant. And I guess I'm also hearing the modern Jewish emphases on 
inclusion and uh, equity and justice and the like, because you're not just helping anyone tell any story. There are some stories you're trying to amplify, get their voices out there. And especially if you're working with nonprofits, nonprofits all have some cause, uh, some some version of tikkun olam, uh, that some, something broken that trying to help fix. I would certainly see continuations of your, your faith evident in what you're doing in podcasting. You think about your own sort of personality, and I heard this on a podcast once. It was a podcast about the TV show The West Wing. One of the hosts was like, there are two kinds of people in the world, people who like to build ships and people who like to sail ships. Mm-hmm. And what I realized from that is like, I like to build ships. I don't like sailing. I don't like maintaining so how do I use that that skill and that energy to help others? And that is to help them start podcasts, right? That That's where all of my skills sort of match up. The goal would be to help the world in some way, and I hope it does. Podcasting is sort of the new sort of hot it thing. But if you sort of go into it without knowing where you're going to take it, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be one of the 41% of 700,000 podcasts on Apple Podcasts <laughs> that don't do more than three episodes. There's a huge podcast graveyard out there. Uh-huh. Because of Oklahoma political issues, there's so much philanthropic money going in to try to keep Tulsa afloat. Uh-huh. It's sometimes the smaller things will get lost. And if you're not interested in a focus that one of the foundations in town isn't focusing on, how do you get attention onto that thing? Uh-huh. That's where I feel like something like podcasts can come in because Nonprofits I know aren't going to have huge marketing budgets. Podcasting over time would be just as much money as spending a lot of money on Facebook, which, as we spoke about earlier, not the best use of anyone's time or money, even though we're all on it. We have quite a bit of overlap in what we're trying to do uh, with our respective podcasts. Uh, and so it's made it a joy for me to sit down and talk with you today. Jesse, if people want to connect with you, yes. um, uh, how can they do that? If you want to listen to uh, Pod for Good, which is Podcast for Good's premier podcast, it's on Apple Podcasts, it's on Google Play, it's on Stitcher, it's on Spotify. For Apple specifically, you have to search for Pod, P-O-D, the number four, good, all one word. We are on Facebook as Podcast for Good, spelled normally. And you can follow me on Twitter, even though I don't tweet that much, at Pods for Good with the number four again. Jesse Ulrich, thank you so much for taking part of your holiday time to sit down with me today. Well, thank you so much. This was fun. It's been a pleasure. This has been Committing Faith in Public, a podcast from the Religion and Public Life Initiative at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Copyright PTS and Gary Peluso Redend. The views and opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect an official position of Phillips Theological Seminary.